On this track, you'll hear commentary by production designer Jeff Mann and film editor Michael Tronick recorded together, as well as visual effects supervisor Kevin Elam. Hello, this gravelly voice is the voice of Jeff Mann, production designer Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And this is Michael Tronick, the film editor of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. <laughs> what can you say about logos? What can you say about the uh, Fox logo that hasn't been etched in stone before? Okay, I'll go first. Um, let me say uh, we don't really need to be here. See, we've been married five years. Six. There was actually a considerable amount of additional dialogue in this opening uh, explaining how they ended up at this psychiatrist's office, which... Uh, I decided to delete because I wanted to maintain the opening here. Um, there was a chance that there was going to be this bookends, which you'd see in the uh, bonus material. It's interesting to, to note that this was our actual first day of shooting that may have been said before in other commentaries, but this is the first time they were literally kind of officially on camera together. And it's interesting, Mike's you know, choice editorially kind of throws you right into that feeling. Without, you know, it's kind of interesting without a big setup to be right into this experience of these two actors working together. And... Yeah, I'm lost. Is this a one to ten thing? But is it like, is one um, very little or is one nothing? Because, you know, te technically speaking, there's... We were locked into uh, a specific amount of credits up front and uh, someone wanted this additional line about, how about this week, uh, which... We were limited to four cards, but we had to go through Fox Legal and actually extended it to the Weed Road credit uh, for the additional card that enabled us to expand the sequence a little bit. Describe how you first met. Uh, it, was, uh, it was in Colombia. Pogota. Five years ago. Six. Right, five or six years ago. Yeah, hi, I'm Kevin Elam. I was a visual effects supervisor for Mr. and Mrs. Smith. This was a shot that we used, actually took from Clear and Present Danger, and we wanted to modify it so it didn't look exactly like Clear and Present Danger, but uh, what we ended up doing was adding the soldiers in the helicopter. Uh, we're actually two guys that were shot on green screen and then hand animated by um, pixel magic. And then we added a lot of fire and smoke and stuff to the, to the shot to make it feel like, you know, all hell's breaking loose. This is the illustrious uh, Barclay Hotel downtown and many a film here, redressed and repurposed to be uh, Bogota, our, our fictionalized, romanticized, Havanified version of Bogota, Colombia. There was talk at one time of putting some uh, additional VFX through the windows there, but it was really not necessary. I think you really feel a sense of place. She's with me. Stop in. We're on stage uh, 15 here at Fox. That was a little added camera shake with that dust uh, falling from the ceiling just to continue the feel of that we're kind of under siege here with a little mini revolution going on. So it speaks, but does it dance? Rumor had it that there had been, you know, upwards of 40 production designers that were met uh, on this project, <laughs> believe it. And 
I, I never really believed it until I actually met Doug, and then I was like, well, it's quite possible that that, that number is true. We had a number of meetings uh, at his office at Hypnotic over on the west side. Uh, we had two two meetings. By the second meeting, I was kind of querying my agent, like, what are we, you know, what what's the second meeting about? And then when the third meeting was asked for, when he actually was down shooting the pilot of uh, the OC in Orange County, that's some stages down there, TV stages, and it was at night, and I was like, I'm I'm going for a third interview. <laughs> like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I have the time. <laughs> I was editing this music video that I was finishing up at that point in time, and um, so he's like, my friend Eric McLeod, the producer, is like, come on, Jeff, just go, just, and I knew Doug's a quirky guy, and so I'm like, all right, so I went down there, and they, they didn't break for lunch, it was supposed to be a lunch meeting until midnight, and I had a babysitter and all this other stuff happening, and we got together, and it was just this crazy cerebral rambling that, that I guess his assistant has on videotape somewhere, I was just, could never, couldn't really make sense of what we were actually trying to discuss. The set turned out really nice. I really love the the feeling that you get from this space. And yeah, I'd like to acknowledge the contribution of uh, Cameron Frankly, our sound designer. Uh, really creates. I mean, Jeff did a great job with this. I always feel like I'm I'm on location in Bogota, and Cameron really created. You know, you hear those church bells and just subtle activity uh, outside the windows that make you give you a great sense of place. Oh, that shot! That shot kills me. <laughs> yeah. The drunken busboy camera. <clears throat> drunken bellboy camera. <laughs> Here comes another added camera shake. At one point, this uh, flower did play a little larger role in the movie, which I'll comment on later on in the sequence. Once again, there was a whole lot of dialogue between the two of them. Um, at the curtain, which we deleted just to go with the looks, which I think says it all. In these shots, we added uh, bits of New York in the background because we wanted to extend it uh, because this was actually shot on the Paramount back lot in Los Angeles. So we ended up putting buildings and um, stuff like that to just kind of give it more of the city, to tie it into the city. This is our San Gennaro Festival on the Paramount back lot here. Kind of a forced perspective arch scenario we did and just basically made like a block and a half, the most compressed version of that that we could come up with with some big rides in the extreme foreground and built this uh, target practice game from re research and reference, try to get the feel some interesting feeling from this because they're, they're fairly dull these days. Turned out really cool. It's very elaborate, <laughs> very expensive to make it all mechanized. It works great. Unfortunately, there were so many rental hydraulics and motors and gears making it work that it kind of got stripped down. There have been some good elements that we could have kept from it, but a lot of that stuff kind of goes into the ether, unfortunately, after a show. This is originally supposed to be in Coney Island, actually at Coney Island. We must have scouted it 16 times. And it never could come together because our New York portion of the shoot you know, kind of started shrinking and shrinking and finally disappeared like a center of an old black and white TV blip. 
Now, usually I wouldn't use a shot that where the uh, rope goes across an actor's eyes, but uh, we just went kind of uncharacteristically for performance, and that enabled me to go to that moment where he notices those two girls standing off to his right. So this is a shot that uh, we actually glued together two separate plates to create a big visual effect shot that uh, Digital Dimension did. They took a piece from uh, what was in the ravine sequence of Colorado and then modified uh, the rock itself and built a big CG rock. And then by doing that, they could glue it together to go up to the plate of Angelina and Jasmine on the rock. Same thing here. Uh, they added in... Um, background plates from Colorado that we had, were originally used for a different sequence. I asked her to marry me. What? I'm getting married! What? I can't hear you. I'm getting married! I can't hear him. Can you stop hitting him? I think he said something crazy. I'm getting married! Neighbor there was shot at a much later time across the street in another different neighborhood during one of our uh, illustrious additional photography sequences. And that shot of Angie in the in the kitchen is stolen from later on when uh, she's getting all her weapons. But we just wanted to kind of balance morning activities, so all the wardrobe people out there will notice a little certain little mismatch in her in her her robe. This is when Doug started. We started accelerating the style uh, editorially in terms of. If you notice the pre-lap of the dialogue about Wexler, and then coming up here, you'll notice um, going right to the dialogue in the garage. The dressing room portion of that room was a great piece of the set. Just all the finishes and there, just see there, you know, these two beautiful actors kind of just refracted in seventeen different reflective areas was really a worked better than I anticipated it would. The house was actually in Pasadena, California. We scouted New York like crazy. We had to kind of hail Mary to find the right place and added all of those elements to the back on location and then built a duplicate of it on stage for all of our night work. <clears throat> if you look carefully, you can see a few palm tree trunks floating around in there. <laughs> it was a house that uh, I know I want to live in. <laughs> yeah, the one on stage was a little yeah. more uh, interesting than the... Uh, the one on location internally. This scene was actually uh, added later on. Uh, it was uh, Akiva Goldsman's idea that we have to introduce the the spy plot somewhere in here. Otherwise, we're kind of mired in in domesticity and and the suburban life. So this is kind of the first time that the, the movie really takes a little bit of a turn to a, a new environment. And in the preview uh, that we saw, of course, everyone enjoys seeing Adam Brody because of his recognition and all. Maybe they won't notice those dents in the elevator that I swear to God were not there when I <laughs> left that set. So initially the the film at one point went right for them driving off to work right to the kitchen again without that... Uh, little scene of Adam. And then here coming up, because we wanted to enforce the idea that she was uh, good with a knife, those were digital knives added on the twirling. Um, 
Learn something every day. Emphasized with the uh, with the sound effects swishes. Now, I was I was never sure that the audience would understand that this was blood or lipstick, and just as long as they questioned what that little mark was on his collar, I guess it's successful. So now we, uh, I think that whole sequence is uh, on stage with him parking and everything. And just a, you know, kind of a quick approach to the to the interior of the house was, <clears throat> you know, kind of creating this this environment that had all this care and thought and design sense and surface detail, you know, and and in essence, just in the end, it's this great kind of picture frame for these two aesthetically but internally and emotionally it really ends up not meaning anything and kind of was a focus of their energies instead of learning about each other uh, that that was the pitch at least I mean what can be a construed as as um, you know, kind of high style hopefully ends up reading you know it, it we didn't go into it wanting to make it feel cold, and I don't think it does feel cold. It just feels refined and 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 like something that was pieced together with with two people kind of um, at, at the same place, you know, at, mentally with what they wanted to do. And uh, that when you start to see how how disparate they are, how far apart they are emotionally from each other, that you you know kind of that every time you see the house, that it reflects like what you know where they should have. You know that they should have been spending their time in places better serving their relationship than what they ended up doing. Zero hmm, percent APR. When Brad first walked onto stage, we had the house completely constructed except for finishes, basically all the flats and stuff, and we had been. Going through the process of of making changes for Doug that had to do with reducing the scope of narrowing hallways and lowering ceilings and so on and so forth, and Brad came in. And he's like, "Wow, it feels kind of small," <laughs> and then invited me to come up to his place that he and Jen had just finished their big Wallace Neff up in Beverly Hills and see some of the stuff that he had done up there because he considers himself, you know, he's kind of an architecture buff and arts buff, and and uh, has you know, we've talked, we had talked a number of times about that kind of stuff, and. So I went up for a quick visit and looked at it as an opportunity to to kind of reinvent. And we're at this point we were trying to make people everybody excited and happy about moving forward with the project. It was very early on. So I kind of got the nod to uh, you know, make it like cement the deal aesthetically concept kind of He just felt that, you know, that our approach to who they were during their work life, you know, not that they're spy life per se, you know, I just don't know if he was in agreement with where we were going with more of a blue collar thing initially. And so when it came to, you know, when it came to the point where, well, they don't, he doesn't put on a Prada sweater when he's going out to kill somebody, he wears one all day long and doesn't make it, you know, then it kind of changed the parameters we were working within. And then at that point in time, and that, that's where his mind was at. And at that point in time, it kind of like, okay, then we are on the wrong page with some of these other approaches and ideas we have for these environments. And so, you know, it was a great, it was liberating for me. Um, the, the other version was much more of a mind, you know, this was very challenging, honestly. There are a lot of, lot of cooks in the kitchen. Um, 
and uh, it, but it, it was I, I embraced it, and you know, everybody was really happy in the end with what we did because we kind of worked in a vacuum a bit. Our little secrets. Everybody has secrets. There's a bunch of swatches and stuff on that bulletin board in front of her. And at one point, there was an approach to the, to the, to the uh, movie to where when she goes to work at iTemp, that the girls are kind of, you know, she is such a killing machine that any kind of femininity or any kind of like craftiness or cooking or any of that stuff was all stuff that she had to be taught and shown and told. So the, the little swatch palette thing with fabric and different little tears and stuff that was in her portion of that breakfast room where a little mini office was at home was this kind of girly gesture that she had was feigning basically because at the moment in time that we were going to establish that she you know basically learned or was told all those little details like on a daily or weekly basis what she was cooking what she was supposed to wear what she was supposed to talk about because all she could think about was her job and her and 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 assassin you know assassinating and other <laughs> Spyishness. This was always a scene that uh, Doug felt was the like a demarcation line of now we're into the movie as far as proceeding with the hits. But prior to that, with all the Wexler scenes, it was always a challenge editorially. There were many more as far as where they go um, after what little snippet of, of Brad or Angie what do we go with to Wexler when they're on their own and what was the content of the dialogue and, and uh, I think we ended up with some good choices. One of the interesting parts about this scene for me is that you know we have these two dif different places and, and it, because we shot them at such different times in the schedule they end up kind of having a tonality that's similar in a way like from a color standpoint and stuff so it was interesting to have the, their kind of parallel experience which you don't know what's is going to happen and what they both end up doing when they go to these what the ideal was that you felt that they were going to having these you know kind of two different affairs in two different parts of town and uh, I think you feel that for the right amount of time this is actually all on location this is really wacky place in downtown Los Angeles. We winded our way all the way back to the back room. So the penthouse suite, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, where Jane's assassination takes place was a really fun set. You know, there's a lot of boutique hotels and a lot of a lot of pretty popular designers are involved in the development of those hotels. There's a there's a bar is pretty high as far as what some of those more you know the more extreme contemporary boutique hotel design sense is. So uh, we definitely knew we could afford to do something fairly outrageous with the look in there and uh you know still wanted to kind of have re feel passionate you know from a tonal standpoint in there but it had this kind of you know euro kind of trash shall we say quality to it um that was not didn't feel too novel i mean it's very novel space but it still comes off as kind of a high design environment and and uh has a great look 
it was fun to spend time in that set. I think to Jeff's credit too, some of this material was shot at a much later date. Um, and the matching for me, editorial, there was never any issue as far as of where we were you know, with, with the set. So example, this is, this is all original photography, but when we come back to the scene later, uh, I'll point out the, uh, the new photography. And I don't think anyone would really know the difference. Girlfriend's got it going on. Mm. These guys were a lot of fun to cut. I really felt a camaraderie and an exuberance in their performance, like they all knew each other. There was a whole subplot here of Brad uh, dis disarming this guy that he's embracing right there with his gun, uh, which didn't quite work out, so we just decided to stick with the, with the card game. And obviously, because of the rating, we had to keep the uh, the gun battle fairly antiseptic in terms of seeing no blood or, or anything like that. So this is a sequence that um, Doug wanted to do a little bit of visual effects embellishment with, and he started with his uh, guy in New York, Joe DiValerio, um, to kind of design the things that we he wanted to do. Um, this shot of Brad pulling back was uh, kind of a fake vertigo shot where we kind of rotated him out and, and blew it back uh, to get that sort of distance thing. And then uh, we added the cards and obviously the muzzle flashes and all that stuff. And at one point, we were actually going to try to add more dead bodies, but uh, we kind of stopped at that point. Okay, so this is a, this is a reshoot. And this is original photography. This is a reshoot. And this is original photography. So luckily, throughout the project, I was able to integrate um, photography from different stages of the production. Well, we always called this sequence the uh, Bryant Park Hotel Jump, basically due to changes. We ended up uh, shooting part of it in Los Angeles. The interiors are a combination of using a uh, translite of Boston, and uh, then this is a background of New York that we actually did shoot at Bryant Park. Uh, that we would comp together. And this is the set piece that then joins to a building in uh, L.A. And Angie really did do the uh, do this jump. We just added the purse and the uh, bag, and we did extend it to make it feel higher and then uh, remove all the wires and stuff. So uh, it had a, a more real dynamic feel to it than, than it would have if it had been a green screen shot. And that's the... Uh... Emory Hotel, she was staying at, named after my daughter. Trying to sneak one in on every show. As far as being conventional un or unconventional, there was always disagreement as far as when she lands, there was a close-up of her shot. And Doug and I both felt that if you cut to a close-up, it's going to make the audience wonder if that's really her or not falling from the building. So that's why we just decided to stay in that master of her falling, getting into the cab. So there's no, how do they do that? or feeling like the audience was being cheated of Angie not doing the stunt. I remember that. It was a big dialogue for a long time about that shot. It was much, works really good that way, the way it is. Welcome, neighbors. Hey. Hi, Susan. Good to see you, darling. Hi. Oh, there you go. Oh, thank you. Oh, what a lovely kiss. Thank you very much. Come on, let's go see the girls. Don't stray too far, guys. <laughs> You want a uh, Cuban? Oh, no, 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 I don't smoke. Oh, clean body, clean soul. That's what Susie says. I hate that the truth. You guys have any vices? Well, you know, 
Can I get you a drink? Ah, uh, yes, Chardonnay, please. Girls! It would be interesting to have had Boy on here to hear what, you know, hear what he had to say. The process was pretty challenging, and Boyan's particular approach, I think, was just kind of, you know, making sure it always was had to look good. And it was there was there was there was not a hell of a lot of collaboration, honestly. It was, uh, you know, I think people chose different devices to get themselves through the process, and his process was just to kind of, you know, he was he wasn't necessarily re reserved, but he would not throw himself in the middle of situations because nine out of ten of them were not. You know, we're we're just psychic energy being wasted, and he was, could, you know, he was good, bad, or indifferent. That was his approach. You know, wish I had a little more of that. And uh, there was a lot of people involved. There was a lot potentially more people involved with most decisions than he was used to having to deal with, and that there was a certain. I don't know if it was an irony to his approach or it, it possibly as, as it being very, uh, you know, he just, he just didn't want to get in the, it, it just chose not to, to try to find his, how big his pie wedge was in the midst of that pie conceptually. I think this was on, lo this is on location. This is a little sequence that we just kind of jumped normally um, it wasn't designed for jump cuts, but we just went from him coming out to the door to him taking his uh, bag off just to kind of accelerate the action here. Now, once we were down here, I jumped it around just because the material allowed me to do that. In other words, go to that, to that, without necessarily playing the head and tail of a, a particular shot. And at one point, we used to crane up from this shot to reveal the house as he drives away, but now we just did this direct cut, all this in terms of just accelerating the, uh, the action. Now here you'll recognize her PJs from earlier on in the movie when she's uh, fixing her tea, when Brad's across the street with a neighbor picking up his newspaper. This was fun. This 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 prop was basically just scripted as you know her guns are hidden in her oven. So like where that oven was, what it was, how it worked was just kind of me thinking about what I'd like to see and working with some people that I knew and and uh, it turned out pretty cool. A trailer moment. I didn't think that would be the case, but. Uh, the whole scene of her just nonchalance was pretty great, and her kicking it closed. That's a double of Brad, and that New York background was all put in CG. These uh, exterior shots, we had ended up going in and adding uh, New York in the background. Originally, what's out there is Long Beach, and uh, Pixel Magic did an amazing job rotoing out the, the cranes and then placing a background plate that Doug shot behind it of New York uh, on the East River. Vince in this section was shot at a much later date, so this was just Brad initially reacting to Doug. And once again, even though these are different locations, I think Jeff's brilliance comes through here in terms of matching the continuity between the two. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure. Uh, as Brad comes into the office here, uh, this is all a blue screen set too. And again, we went and took a different angle of the same plates that Doug shot and comped them into the, to the window plates. This was, there was blue screen, you know, out that window right there. We originally, this was built on location, then got rebuilt on stage again for various reasons not worth going into. And the conversion of it kind of becoming his little spy lair with this combination of this, you know, early 40s industrial office space where his, his engineering firm is based, his cover story, which is 
all kind of a wacky, you know, fun stretch for what his what his cover was. Yeah, Jeff kept coming into the cutting room and saying, "Show more of this stuff. Show more of this stuff." I said, "Man, I can't. I got to get on with the story." No, and I, I'm I'm really pleased. I mean, Mr. Tronic is actually, you know, he can tell it, tell me I'm a genius a hundred times over, but at the end of the day, I'm still licking his shoes here. There's no question. So for these uh, computer screens, we actually went in at the very end of the film. Doug wanted to kind of recut the scene and redesign those uh, graphics that go in there. And um, basically, we ended up taking footage and running it back and forth. We only had so many angles, uh, so we ended up cloning the footage and rocking, rolling it. And Black Box went in and, and redid the graphics to, to come up with that look. Creating c computer screens is so subjective, you know. It's like it, it, it's... You always need dozens of them in a movie like this, and it's just it can become such a, you know, an uninteresting aspect of the project. That was, that, oh, sorry, Mike, go ahead. I was going to say that little sequence of her walking down the sidewalk was a fairly unorth unorthodox approach to establishing place. You know, more traditionally, you would go to the big wide exterior of the buildings and then find her come in, but we just kind of reversed that up a bit, and that was Doug's choice, and I think it worked out successfully. Her building, her headquarters is this building. It's the, it was originally the RCA headquarters in New York that was built in, I think it was 1928. If I'm not, I may be wrong. But I used to know exactly every spec about the building. But it was great f for me to find a building in New York that we could capitalize on that hadn't really been beat to death in other films before. You know, I was like, why hasn't anybody taken advantage of this amazing Art Deco Gothic facade? So our, we're saying that we're kind of in a stylized version of the penthouse of that building and this that's where this environment is. The funny thing with this scene is that the studio really didn't like the the color of the floor was actually much bluer and they really didn't like it so they you know in the DI they tried to knock it down and give it more of a green cast. All of it was kind of couched with 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 how as as the process was going on because we were working on the movie for so long and some things came later like how well it felt like their the domesticity aspects of their life was working was how much license to take you know i always work with some kind of a backstory like i, I i'm not a person a designer that just kind of looks through stuff to find the coolest thing i can find and not really have a reason for it um and those reasons are fabrications a lot of times, but at least it gives us an a you know a beginning and an end point to work within, or an or, or two walls to push against, rather than having none. Um, and it's it's an it's I tried to describe that process my my own process before, and it's probably different for all designers, but mine is kind of there's a version of lo there's a logic that I try to apply even if we're establishing the logic, so you know parameters. This whole sequence was our last sequence of, of uh, photography, was it not, Mike? This is our final? Just about, except for the very end of the movie. There's a great line of dialogue written by the editor there. Was that the copy that Joe? It was uh, Broadway. <laughs> this is Broadway Joe. Broadway red Team, Joe. Red Team, Red Team, Red Team. <laughs> and Red Team was the name of the band that our apprentice in New York was in. Nice. Now these computer screens were shot completely blank and uh, by this time in the process I had learned that Doug relied on the computer screens to help reinforce what the story was. Um, and I, we actually did some little composites ourselves and then we had this brilliant kid in New York um, who designed and worked with Doug 
to uh, come up with a lot of these graphics. So he would take that practical shot, then add all that computer graphic to it. All this dialogue was added. Basically, when I put the scene first together, it was mostly a silent scene. I didn't know who she was talking to in that microphone, so I just kept her silent. Uh, but then all this, uh, the communication was added at a later date. Joe DeValerio, I think his name is, he's on the credits. He did a brilliant job with these uh, computer screens. So that's the, we built two shacks up on the rock. This one was down low so we could get the technocrane in and around the interior of that old mining built structure. And the other one up on the, on the rock in the left hand of that last shot was uh, humping all that equipment up there, all the, all the lumber and everything, and constructing that up in sight, coping it into the rocks up there. Where'd you, get, where'd you get the idea for that doll in the doorway there? I always like that. Well, it's just <laughs> there's a lot of random stuff in the desert. The yeah. desert's one of my favorite places yeah. just because you, there's so much weird little history for every piece of mm -hmm. deritis that's floating around out there. And you see the most, you know, crazy, the craziest things when you're out cruising in the desert, especially a well-worn piece of the desert like this, you know, where it's like any, any number of bodies are buried or drugs are stashed or guns are being shot for fun or people are eating right. mushrooms or <laughs> you never know why or what is the backstory behind some of that stuff. This explosion about to occur is another example of Doug's approach editorial of just staying in a single shot. There are a lot of cameras on this explosion and if this was a a movie for a different filmmaker, I'd probably cut in tight and see the shack explode two or three times, but just staying in this one shot and seeing Brad react to it I think is really effective. So basically this sequence is, uh, the desert replaced another sequence uh, that was originally supposed to take place in upstate New York known as the Snowy Ravine. And uh, we kind of truncated it or, or, or made it a, a simpler version of, of the story point because the, there were such big effects and um, the appetite was so big, and it, it almost felt like the heroes were becoming unrealistic people that uh, we ended up making the, the desert scene a, a simpler version of what was supposed to happen in the Snowy Ravine. One of the biggest issues with the, with the, with the changes is in, in the ravine is that there would have been uh, so many effects that would need to be added and uh, plates changed and we actually ended up not having any snow in the snowy ravine, so we ended up would have to add snow, and the complexity got so big that it it almost uh, the budget was was uh, seemingly going to be out of reach for us. So um, we basically came up with a, a new idea. Simon Crane actually pitched this idea. I'm not sure it was him. You said that you had your ass handed to you by some girl. I think so. Pro. This shouldn't be that difficult. I mean, how many chicks or hitters out there? You know what I mean? It was a very hard music to come up with temp score. Um, we relied on uh, some previous scores that John Powell had done. Um, some very unusual choices. Um, a lot of Maria Moldauer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Could be arranged. Perfect. Could be arranged. Did you hear that? I'd like to have her kick my ass. You know what I mean? Right. Did you give me other details on her besides your weight class? Laptop. 
I'm sorry? You're in a whole zone right now. I'm having a hard time talking to you. Laptop. Okay, laptop. I want to know who that bitch is. Get me that tape. James, get me that tape. What? It's father. When she's talking about get me that tape, there used to be a surveillance camera in this tunnel in the in the uh, mountain sequence, which no longer exists, but somehow no one really seems to question what that tape means or where it's coming from. That shot of Kerry Washington was actually stolen from another scene just to kind of help reinforce her involvement and her importance in the, uh, the ITEMP scheme of things. All right, we have a new target. Let's find out who he is. Campfire with it? I knew one. This one has sentimental value for its owner. This is actually your garage, wasn't it, Jeff? <laughs> it's my favorite uh, electronics surplus place out in the valley. Apex Electronics, the biggest fire hazard in <laughs> San Fernando. So we did something s silly here where she goes to this other screen. I was like, why don't we strip the computer out of its housing completely? And take a digital photograph of the junk that's behind it, which you can see it up in the upper right hand side of the or the top of the frame in that last in that last piece. And then so when the screen comes up, it reveals the uh, it looks just like a pile part of the pile of junk because we took a digital image of what was right behind it and fed it live into the into the monitor. And it kind of worked. It was just something to do. And you know when you start dealing with all these computers all the time, you're like, what can we do? Like bread it and batter it for this? <laughs> you know, like deep fry it. <laughs> what can we do now with the laptop? That transition was kind of a post-production afterthought in terms of how we started developing a certain style of, of speeding up to get us into locations. Original photography. And then we came back to emphasize this moment, so this is all reshoot. We were lucky to find that lobby <clears throat> here in Los Angeles, it felt like it was part of that building in New York, which we're never actually inside of that, uh, the, ex the only the exterior of the RCA building. It's ever part of the movie. Why don't you both go make some coffee? So actually in the original sequence, she's looking at Brad in a in a mountain sequence, a mountain environment, and then all the graphics were changed on the computers to put them in the desert. And our visual effects supervisor, Kevin Elam, did a great job coordinating all these different visual effects houses for all these effects as well. He's back from Atlanta. He wants to know about dinner. Tell him dinner's at 7. Hi, John. Yeah, she says dinner's at 7. It always is. Okay, and then for all your continuity buffs, you know that that is not Brad's car. So this was a piece that uh, Mike Tronic put in to show Brad coming home. If you look at the beginning of the hood jump, no, actually it's the race home. Uh, you'll see the same shot pretty much in that, but 
what editorial did was flop it and uh, it was always just a placeholder originally we're you know we're eventually supposed to reshoot it with a cadillac and um it would never happen so at one point visual effects was asked to change this car into a cadillac and we got fairly much down the process and putting the grill in and everything and then somebody i said legally that it probably wasn't too good to turn uh, a cadillac into a lincoln um or a link vice versa i should say um so we actually abandoned that but we we did always know it was a continuity error It's a nice surprise. I hope so. You're home early. I missed you. Mm. I missed you too. Shall we? Yes. I must say, to the credit of our two movie stars is that editorially I never had to I was never in a position of trying to find a performance um, they're pretty great take in take out there was always something that I could use um, so it was never a, a question of did we get it or not it was like we got so much of it um, that was great for me as far as making the choices this was actually one of my favorite scenes to cut editorially because I know the great thing about this movie is that the the different types of scenes going from action to a, a, a two-person dinner scene, but also with this cat and mouse game of they know what's going on here, and so they're trying to uh, out outsmart, outthink each other in terms of potential weapons that could be used. Um, the studio kept saying, "Make it faster, make it faster." It's too lugubrious, but uh, we just kind of stuck to our guns and let them let the scene play. And it was gratifying in the previews that we had how well the audiences responded. I think it's important to let scenes breathe dramatically uh, instead of keeping up the hyper pace of uh, some action sequences. It's important to get those little looks back and forth, those little silent beats, which could be deleted, but I think it tells you volumes about what's going on between the two characters. We'd always have to break for lunch after working on this scene because I always get hungry. Well, I hope everything works out okay. It hasn't yet. But it will. Pot roast is my favorite. Sweetheart, could you pass the salt? something new? Mm-hmm. Mm. 
is Atlanta. Had a few problems ourselves. Some figures didn't add up. Big deal. Life or death. Wine? This is a reshoot later on to make more of an emphasis of the, uh, the spilled bottle. Those two push-ins were manufactured editorially. This used to be a flashback sequence at one time in the script. Now, normally editorial, I wouldn't want to hang on a shot that long, which just shows an empty hallway. So there was one time where I cut outside to show Angelina going to her car in the garage, but she did it very slowly. So we just stayed with the shot, and then when Brad does emerge with the gun, uh, we got really good re response from the audience. That was all cheated as far as creating uh, a sense that they're running parallel to each other there, where she looks over and sees him. And this is the same street corner she turned earlier on in the sequence, but it was just done a little bit tighter. There was a little reflection put over the windshield, so you couldn't see that was actually a stunt double for Angie when the bullet hits the windshield. This is an interesting uh, sequence, because at one point we had to actually add tips back onto the fence, because... Uh, Brad, they, we actually made them, if he jumped on them, he would have hurt himself. So they sawed them off, and we had to put them back in digitally. So this sequence uh, is known as the hood jump. Uh, was originally a car chase sequence that happened on the West Side Highway and was abandoned because of it was, it was too expensive. But the, the interesting thing for us on in visual effects was the last shot where Brad uh, goes off into the into the bushes and the car launches. Uh, we shot it all with VistaVision to track the two elements together because we, we wanted to shoot Brad on the day in their car and, and basically glue the two pieces together. And unfortunately, the footage was destroyed in the lab, and we could only rescue just the very the very last part of the jump. So uh, we ended up reshooting a, a piece of Brad against Blue and just the car and, and comping him in there. But um, Visual effects had to step in a couple of places and, and actually just fix some of the footage that was destroyed. One of the questions that my assistants would always ask, well, if her car just got wrecked there, how does she show up later on in the, uh, in the same car? But uh, I guess there was a whole thing where the, the ITEMP girls had these whole fleet of Mercedes station wagons that were at Angie's disposal. Yeah, there was a whole scene. We were looking for a garage to stage that whole late night restoration of her car as a scene alternative. And, you know, in retrospect, a lot of those things don't, when the story's working and good and moving along, it's not every logic point doesn't need to be addressed. There was a tremendous amount of coverage of the scene. Uh, Vince went off every take on a, a noodle improv. Uh, so actually, it was a, quite a challenge editorial to integrate what we considered the funny moments uh, and still make sense of what was going on. 
with the intercutting to uh, Angelina as well. So I think it was I, myself that suggested to Doug and Akiva initially that Eddie lived with his mom so that he could play off of her and, you know, be this divorcee and stuff, and they kind of took the ball. And Yeah, it was a, it was a very funny take when, uh, when Brad challenges him. And then, of course, that always... It was added earlier on in the sequence when he uh, sees Eddie at the office. You, you live with your mother, so that was taking this idea that Jeff came up with and embellishing it. Johnny, I'm not, look, I know you're embarrassed, but hey, come on, it's me, it's Eddie you're talking to. The guys we work with, they don't know, I'm never going to tell them. I mean, the people she works with, they probably got a big laugh over this over the last six years, but so what, who cares, that's not important. Look, it, it's like 150 pages of a book has been written. Vince's as aspect of what he brings to this movie, it's great. There's a, there's a lot of conversations about bringing, you know, having him be more pivotal and doing voiceover and... <clears throat> And my perspective, I mean, I was really kind of excited about that thought originally mm -hmm. when I saw how funny this stuff was. But that just the doses we get of him are probably like the perfect amount for the, for the, for the project. And more than that would probably, you know, start to kind of wear. This is another moment that was shot later on. And after we took a look at uh, some earlier versions of the movie, this take of uh, Angelina to show that there was a, an emotional component here as far as getting down to the truth of the relationship where she's trying to talk herself out of her, her feelings as is mirrored in this um, the scene with Brad, which was an additional scene that was, was also shot later. And knowing Brad, I wasn't there when the scene was actually shot, but like this little beat he does with the blanket is total Brad, like that is him making that up. He, that's the kind of stuff he loves to do. It's just a little weird dog-eared mart, you know, corner of the page like that. That's a comp, right, Mike? Isn't yeah, that, that was uh, originally blue screen. It's pretty good. Yep. And actually, that exterior, a lot of that fall foliage was added uh, digitally as far as giving those warm oranges and browns to the leaves. It's one of the only times you see the house during the day, this, this sequence here. Part of this wedding video was actually shot by Doug, and that was first unit photography that we composited there. So I mentioned the flower early on in the uh, Bogota sequence. After she turns off the TV, she used to notice a book on the nightstand, and she opened it up to a page, and there was the flower, as if uh, John Smith kept it as a keepsake uh, for sentimental values, and it made her even that much more angry, but it just didn't quite work, so we cut right from her turning off the TV to throwing out the teddy bear. Garden party, girls. Howdy, neighbor. I just noticed for the first time he's, 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 he's 
barbecuing something with John's barbecue because there's a line <laughs> later when they steal right. the van. Exactly. Where he says he still has my barbecue. So it's kind of funny that. Oh, I love the floors. What are they? Teak? Red oak, Mark. Red oak. Uh, Brad had many different reactions to that line about the floors. Unfortunately, we had to change it for ratings. This is probably my biggest editorial victory, Mike. I don't remember talking about how Doug wanted to use this, his reaction to having her gone when I mentioned to him just to blow off her first shooting up the uh, the shed at night. Right, yeah. In order to keep this in. Exactly. Target profile is our main priority. This was probably the most difficult scene for me editorially, uh, initially because we never had Brad's side of, of the scene. So it was always sometimes done with voiceover, sometimes done with computer graphics. But it wasn't until the last reshoot, the stuff that was done back down at uh, the City of Industry, that we'd got Brad's side going through the tunnels that really brought this confrontation to life. Fine. Uh, Jane? What? I think I found him. Where? Here. Heat sensor breach in the perimeter. Let's send all doors. I thought I told you not to bother me at the office, honey. Well, you are still Mrs. Smith. Well, so are a lot of girls. Careful, Jane. I can push the button anytime, anywhere, sweetheart. Baby, you couldn't find the button with both hands and a map. For the film buffs out there, this uh, whole AC duct scene was shot in our last, our last piece of photography that we did, and I think we stole it from the Shaggy Dog. <laughs> <laughs> they had an AC duct set that we ended up like giving them five grand for and modifying because it was like a last minute thing that they wanted to do. So the Shaggy Dog had one. So the, you'll, if you go see that movie, you can know that both the dog and Brad shared <laughs> shared those ducts. So this scene was kind of an interesting challenge to have this evacuation take place and do it in such a way that was interesting. And so, which is kind of why you couldn't see out the windows of ITEM because they have all this nefarious stuff happening. And then, I don't know if you see when, when they implement this, this escape conceptually with these kind of glorified harpoon guns that the, that the scrims over the windows elevate, they get retracted into the ceiling, the windows are broken on cue. You just saw it just leaving frame there out of the frame. And that the guns themselves become an integral link to their escape. It was a great piece. And there's a little charge that sends them out the window. So initially when the scene was, was shot, that was the first time that Brad and Angie actually made contact. You saw them in the same scene together. And then the tunnels, the Shaggy Dog tunnels, were added later, as was this exchange. Shit. Pussy! 
So he was actually in the parking lot at... Uh... Yep, in the city of industry. So was she. That was all composite behind her in that shot. We didn't build that much. Vince only did one take with this, with the shotgun. Uh, others was, he was just either drinking or something, but this was the, the goal that we went for and uh, it was very successful. Please, you're driving me crazy with the tongs in the, in, the, in the furnace. You're like an insane man. All right, they gave you 48 hours. What do we got left here? 23, 22? 18 and change. You got 18 hours until they close the book on both of you? Eddie! Mom, we're on high alert here. I almost killed you right then. You do not even realize. Never mind. I am so done playing games with this broad. You got to take this bitch out head on. Don't tell me I'm the enemy, my wife. This broad is not your wife. She's the enemy. And she could be outside right now. Eddie. Got it. Now we're talking. Only question is how much is it to buy a vow? Another stylized transition, which uh, was formulated in post. The voice of Ellen Exley, who is Doug's assistant. In the bottom floor of the uh, new Caltrans building in downtown Los Angeles <laughs> under construction, with the Bloomberg Tower added to the top. Not only is uh, Jeff Mann a great production designer, but he's also uh, very cognizant of story. And throughout the movie, there are contributions he's made um, to the movie uh, in meetings that I was a part of. The mom, and then the end of this sequence, as far as the whole bit with the camera that you'll see was Jeff's idea. Well, we struggled with this whole scene because the original concept was this, like where Brad was actually plummeting with with the elevator, and there was this outrageously elaborate, expensive sequence of him literally plummeting to his death and this thing being off its rails and being collapsed and crushed like he was inside of a aluminum can conceptually. And uh, there were so many challenges, you know, time, money, um, uh, approach to the scene and whether or not it would actually be the right thing for the movie, you know, all those things working... So a long time ago, I, I just pitched that there was some kind of deception that had taken place, that he had, the, rather than her just sending him to his death and him living because he, you know, got crafty while this thing was plummeting, was more about him having the final say in the sequence, but I've already manipulated it by the time you reveal the end. There were a number of uh, pre-visualizations done for this movie, and this elevator fall was one of them where you do see him falling and going in the exterior of the elevator and breaking it and doing all these elaborate things to save his life. Okay. I give up. Blow it. What? Go on, blow it. You think I won't? I, I think you won't. Okay. Five, four, any last words? The new curtains are hideous. Bye, John. What the hell was that? What? You said goodbye. So that's a combination of miniatures and uh, visual effects. 
during the editorial process, Doug spent a lot of time in New York, and we communicated um, via the Internet as far as ideas. Um, so that example of Brad smiling right before she presses the button was a shot that Doug liked. So he was able to integrate that into the sequence and email it to me, and I, then I looked at it and kind of finessed it a bit, but to use it. So it was, it was a great tool because that's, that's his home and um, where he wanted to spend his time, but we were still, it was, almost, it was like having a virtual director in the cutting room, but uh, a way that I had never worked with, uh, I'd never worked before. That uh, catering truck was actually something I took a picture of when we were scouting in New York, the United Fried Chicken truck. And they were supposed to have been in this building, like Jane and those guys, and, and the girls, went, having moved to set up this trap and literally be in the building. And I brought that picture into Doug's office and said, what about if they're in this and they're actually not in the building at all? And we went and hired a PA to find that truck. We bought it in New York and shipped it out here. Because I'm like, nobody would believe it if I put United Fried Chicken on the side of a catering truck and made it look as ratty and disgusting as this thing does. So we acquired the actual United Fried Chicken truck. And that's what the scene is known by, too. Again, this is one of those, this is a, a, a sequence that was, these close-ups of Angelina were shot later on to help build a little bit of the emotional content uh, where she thinks, you know, her husband has actually been killed. Uh, and now we're back to the original photography. I watched the scene. I'm trying to figure out the exact moment when we're supposed to know she knows it's him right there, you know? Because it's like there's a... You don't really know. I know. I always imagined it was just the touch of his hand. Yeah, that, well, that's what you sense when her, with her facial reaction. Very minor editorial point, but when he says, I want a divorce, there were about four or five takes, but there was only one take where he actually put the bucket, I mean, put the uh, champagne bottle in the bucket as if the, so the sound of the ice was like an exclamation point to that. So the takes would always evolve, and usually, I mean, sometimes there's no rule. Sometimes I'd use the earlier takes, sometimes the last takes, but uh, I always had choices in terms of, of, of possibilities uh, from the performers. So what do you want, Tom? You have an unusual problem, Jerry. You obviously want me dead. And I'm less and less concerned of your well-being. We do. We shoot it out here. Hope for the best. Mm. Well, that would be a shame because they would probably ask me to leave once you're dead. Once again, this is a particularly brilliant piece of music that John Powell composed, where he's actually integrating what you would consider source music from a imaginary, well, from an orchestra in the background, but plays it as score where he does comment on moments until right, leading right up to the dance. You think this story's gonna have a happy ending? Happy endings are just stories that haven't finished yet. This tango is basically completely recreated um, editorial. This originally took place at the end of the tango. One of the challenges for our sound people was that when Brad and Angelina did their dialogue. They wanted to hear playback of the music, so all the dialogue was recorded wild, and they did a great job of syncing it up to the actual performances. Because the music they used for playback when they shot this is different than John Powell's music, so the, the conflict would have been unbearable. 
a lucky little piece of Brad that I was able to steal from the very end of a take uh, where he actually he winks after uh, Doug had said cut and uh, it worked. Why do you think we failed? Because we were leading separate lives? Or was it all the line that did us in? I have a theory. Newly formed. I'm breathless to hear it. You killed us. Provocative. You approached our marriage like a job, something to be recon planned and executed. And you avoided it. What do you care if I was just a cover? Who said you were just a cover? Wasn't I? It wasn't I. I have to. Excuse me. No exits up there, Jane. Be cool, John. She's a liar. Be super cold. You know, Mike, <clears throat> talking about having that little piece of Brad, that little wink, that little reaction at mm -hmm. the end of that piece, and, you know, it just reminds me of how just the process of filmmaking is, is in my personal experience, you know, has been kind of equal parts of like careful planning and total serendipitous experiences that, you know, or, or circumstances that uh, give you that little piece or just like if we had, what if we had done X instead of Y? Mm -hmm. We talked about Y in the 11, you know, we were like, rolled a coin you know or flipped a coin or rolled the dice and it be, it was y or and 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 x because x never would have worked you absolutely know? It never would have happened the way that it did and then it doesn't work and you have to go <laughs> back and do so it's just this it's a crazy organic process you know it's much more my and again i can only speak from my experience but there's it's you know the, the process of making a film especially one like this is one of all these personalities coming together and and it, it becomes this almost an organism unto itself that ha that dictates its own rules, its own feeding schedule, its own sleeping schedule, and and uh, you can you either have to be part of that organism or or not. And once you commit to it, it's a you know it's a full time job maintaining your position in that. Um, no, you're absolutely right. And I think entering into a picture of this scope initially, I had certain expectations or preconceived notions in terms of how I thought it would unfold and I was constantly surprised on a daily basis in terms of those moments that were unexpected or per perhaps unplanned for. This was all shot on a stage, rear projection, which I think was really, really successful. Yeah, definitely. There's still something kind of stylish about it, but it just works and uh, when you listen to it without our voices trampling the track, you'll hear some really interesting sound treatment of the cars going by that uh, Cameron kind of elaborated on. So how about it, Jane? Hmm? I thought. <sighs> I thought that you were the most beautiful Mark I'd ever seen. The house fight was, it was probably one of the more long-term discussions that we had during the course of the of the show you know what was going to happen how they were going to because as soon as one version got worked out that had doug's thoughts and and the second unit director simon crane's thoughts and the producer's thoughts and was presented to the actor and actress they had their own thoughts it would send us scurrying back or not me specifically i was just still waiting for the shoe to drop but uh to to kind of 
appease them and still have everybody else feel like that's something they wanted to do or in this give and take process. So we ended up a, a couple of times with a, you know, a house uh, where the walls were basically full of, you know, of, of pyrotechnic uh, gunpowder. Um, and we were shooting, you know, it, it was obviously not wired and active, but because of our schedule, we had to kind of pre-rig so much of what was going on in there and just kind of keep elaborate notes as far as what where the squibs were hit, what was rigged to blow. <laughs> Perfectly appropriate to kind of spend all this time in this inside this bomb. It's a great little piece right here. Mm -hmm. But the scene, you know, the fight turned out really great. I mean, the whole movie is, you know, is so much greater than it's, than it, than, uh, the sum of its parts is much greater than a lot of the parts. It's really, I'm very happy. I don't know if that sounded happy. It was mm -hmm. supposed to have sounded a big compliment to us. So back originally, when she comes out of the door here, she opened fire on him, but we kind of constructed it so that's kind of a superimposed bit of Brad against that tree, which wasn't intended originally. And this was just, see, there's just a little slight bit of movement, the very tail end of that cut, which allowed me to get into this part of him running, and somehow it magically worked, because he never ran from that tree. Now, as he looks up there, he used to climb up on the second story, but just to move this move the sequence along, we just kept him uh, on the first flight of stairs. I, I'm sorry, on the first first floor, ground floor, and then yeah, breaking into his den. There he goes. And that piece that he gets the gun out of is this thing I've had. I must have had this that. Uh, backboard for some old submarine torpedo game for 12 years and I was like oh you know I should make be a great prop to have in his den kind of a you know this m masculine gaming fun arty little thing and uh, we built this elaborate box that he goes in and that's great it was very impressive game over that was part of it already we just m made it all light up and blink and it really is kind of fun there's a reason I kept it in my garage buried for 12 years <laughs> That one little POV of Brad's into the window there was actually shot by Doug. Doug operated camera on a few scenes here and there. The, the shot of him way back when, when he's in the bar before he kills Lucky, um, going by the restroom, was also a Doug shot. I remember having the dialogue with Doug specifically about that gun. You know, like the gun should be in the box, but inside the plastic, like it shouldn't have been opened, which is an interesting Dougism, that thought. This was just kind of all-out fun for me to cut, and luckily I didn't know about the stories of the difficulties involved. I just got the film, and I, I just thought it was terrific. As an editor, I really don't like going out to the set that much because I really don't want to know the history of, of what goes behind each shot because it might prejudice me to use it one way or the other if I know that, God, they worked so hard to get that. But you know what? It just doesn't work. So I'm much less prejudiced against uh, using things if I don't know the history behind it. So I had no idea about the difficulties. I mean, I knew, I knew there was a lot of discussion about the house fight, but uh, I just kind of divorced myself from all that and just try to look at the dailies as uh, clearly as possible. Um, actually, what, I did come to the set the one day, and uh, 
the script supervisor walked me through uh, with Simon to kind of show me what the choreography was. So, um, I mean, I'm always trying to avoid showing a scene to a director and having a crash and burn because I really messed up in terms of geography. So sometimes I will get things uh, like a little floor plan drawn out for me so I know that from point A to point B to point C, this is, this is how it progresses. So uh, visual effects, uh, we basically came in to embellish a lot of things that were uh, in the sequence and to try to make things seem a little bit more dangerous. Um, for example, these are split comps. Uh, we re actually retimed Brad there running, so it seemed like it was more dangerous. Obviously, muzzle flashes, uh, bullet hits galore uh, were added in later digitally. Uh, though a lot of it was really done, like, all that's practical, this, those guys did. This is a split comp uh, for firing over the, the counter. Um, the knife's a CG knife. Um, other things that uh, we added in was the the actual gas effect here of it uh, when he pulls the, the hose out. That's just a little uh, comp that uh, Pixel Magic did for us. Um, again, split comp. There's the gas. There's a split comp, and then this is also another split comp. We shot the fireball. We shot Angie jumping out of the way and and hit her with some interactive light, and then we um, shot the fireball by itself and glued the two together. But. Uh, the problem with that shot was the fireball was much faster than her coming out of the way, so we had to kind of retime the fireball, and Pixel Magic did that. But uh, there were their early comps were basically that we incinerated her. Build a lot of breakaway furniture for this. <laughs> it was interesting though, because you know we didn't really going in. We knew it was going to be a free for all in there, but didn't really limit us to our decisions. Both Victor Zolfo, my set decorator, myself, as far as what we chose to be in the house. You know, we just like you know what, I'm not going to limit it or or have it be these kind of simplistic things to recreate. Just for I'm not going to be fiscally responsible in here. <laughs> damn it! Step out of my way. And uh, I'm glad we didn't compromise with what we what we dressed that house with. I really thought this fight might have been a problem with the ratings board, um, but uh, it wasn't. So luckily for us, we were still able to ma maintain the PG-13. This is one of my luckier uh, 
usages of the uh, Joe Strummer song that we heard in Bogota, that when I cut this originally, the moment that I really feel that she's emotionally connecting to, to Brad here, that we would hearken back to the time of falling in love. And I said, what better way to do that than to play the music that they first danced to? And through all different versions and trials and tribulations, we always kept coming back to it. Although this is a little bit of a different version because of uh, uh, added instruments and uh, taking out the vocal, but it's unmistakable that this hopefully does take us back to Bogota when they first fell in love. Or did they really fall in love? I don't know. This is also basically the Disney version of the uh, <laughs> love scene, isn't it, uh, Absolutely, Mike? Yeah, yeah. We have the Miramax version later on. Unfortunately, um, through my experience, uh, I have been in ratings battles before, um, so I kind of have an idea of, of what will be accepted and what won't, and then uh, the guys at Fox... Uh, Ted Galliano was also very instrumental in helping us with the board as far as modulating what would be used and not. For me, project by project, year by year, sometimes it's the overall political climate of where we are sometimes will dictate what the ratings process is. It's all very, very subjective. But um, candidly speaking, I think usually you get the ratings that you want. Um, True Romance was a tremendous battle with the stu with the ratings board to get it to an R, and I think finally the big boys at Warner Brothers just said, make it happen, and it finally did. So I don't know about the process. It just seems to be kind of a, a very subjective, secretive thing. But I, I mean, if you use the F word twice, you know automatically you get an R. So there are certain rules and parameters. Other times when they just talk about the tone of a movie, that's really difficult to deal with. Yeah, I was shocked to talk to some people that I know and, you know, had taken their kids to see the movie because of the rating, you know, being a parent myself and involved in the movie industry and just my approach to parenting, our, our approach. You know, even at 9 or 10 or 11, I would not personally bring my kid to a movie like this. My daughter's 12, and uh, luckily she was kind of, she's always part of the process one way or the other, either visiting me in the cutting room or coming to the mix or something like that. So she was familiar enough with the movie that we felt okay um, showing this to her. But as an aside, we just walked out of uh, Must Love Dogs because it was a little inappropriate. And not to say that me at 11 would have snuck into <laughs> this movie to see it. So, Absolutely. you know, where, where do you draw the not line? You. left of yours. A thing of beauty. You take it well. Thank you. <laughs> that vacation in Aspen? Mm. You left early. Why? Jean-Luc Gaspard. Oh, God! <laughs> yeah. I wanted him. I get it. Wow. You didn't hear me that night the chopper dropped me off for our anniversary dinner. No? No? Mm. Percussion grenades. I was partially deaf that night. I'm slightly colorblind. Mm. Retinal scarring. I can't feel anything in these three fingers.
there was some additional photography shot of other bad guys approaching the house, coming through school on school buses and in home security cars. But we just kept it simple, and I think the less you see of the bad guys, the better. And it seemed to be the best uh, approach to this uh, assault on the house. So all these lasers were added in post. This little sign language sequence was one of those sequences that I was pretty much cutting until almost the end of the movie. Uh, there were some suggestions of using subtitles and uh, reshooting and all, but the first time we showed this to an audience, they got it and they started laughing. I mean, as far as here they are trying to work out something and uh, working as a team, you can see the inherent difficulties. What we did for the house explosion was originally uh, what I wanted to do was get the full scale set because we had built that on stage and literally, you know, take it outside and blow it up and do a split comp with uh, the actors on wires, which is, you know, probably the right, right way to do it. But we had extra time uh, during the day to shoot stuff. So uh, the AD uh, and associate producer, Kim Winther, uh, said, we need to shoot the shot. So uh, we did this bit with Brad and Angie jumping and landing in basically a soft pad and as a lock off. And I was upset because I was like, well, I'll never make this work. And uh, eventually what we had to do is uh, we never did get around to shooting the shot the way I wanted to. So we had to go in and we went and built uh, a miniature at uh, Cinema Production Services and lined it up at the exact same angle as the lock-off and then blew it up, and then it's a split comp that uh, Furious FX did. It actually came out pretty nice, and the, the legs going past camera at the, at the end were um, not Brad and Angie. They were actually their, their uh, stand-ins, and those were added in later, too, at a much later date because Doug wanted it them to feel like the actors went past camera from the force of the explosion. It was the added kitchen sink to the uh, explosion here. We had a version of the movie actually when we were in uh, in New York, not this summer, but last summer, and we showed a version to uh, Akiva Goldsman and Lucas Foster, and in one of the, and, and in that this was the first time they'd seen the movie after the direct after the editor's cut, and we went off in a tangent trying to explain this whole spy world business, and Akiva really he was very poignant in just saying that part of the the movie isn't really Im that important. And the more you try to explain, it's kind of like the bigger the hole we, we dug for ourselves were, and we never were really quite able to emerge from that. So we kept it to a minimum. I was, from day one of seeing the two of them in the Wexler office together, the goal for this movie is, is right here, is the two of them together. And you've, you can forgive all the, uh, the innuendos or the subplots as far as the spy background because you enjoy the two of them so much. Oh, 
Fuckers get younger every year. Is that your one fuck right there? That's it. In the opening uh, shot where Brad's actually talking uh, to Angelina, that we did a continuity fix in there that you can, if you look at it, you can kind of see. But the window was actually blown out, uh, and it wasn't supposed to be at that point. So if you look at the background, you'll see it changing from Brad's window to the one behind him in size, and that's why that is. I think we went back about four or five times to shoot this on separate occasions. Thank God I can't do much when <laughs> when you're on the freeway right. <laughs> on, a, on a process trailer. I never really had to show up for any of this. So this is a, this is a tremendously complicated sequence uh, on a lot of different levels, but luckily it uh, it was it came off really well. It's a great sequence for Cameron, our sound guy. I had a little help from another editor named Steve Kemper, who's cut a lot of John Woo movies, who came in and just kind of spiced up some of the action here for me, which has worked out great, because with all this footage and everything else going on, sometimes it was a little bit overwhelming for one person to handle. A lot of that was a cheated moment as far as the collision there uh, and her her responding to it. So we, again, within the material that's that's given, we do create a lot of these moments which weren't intended or never scripted, and they and they have a way of working out. We added everything from from bullet holes uh, to you know debris flying to speeding shots up. All these muzzle flashes and impacts on glass are all added. For the, when we shot the the background plates, uh, I was lucky enough to to ride with Simon Crane on his chase car, um, which uh, was pretty crazy. At least I thought so, because uh, he was doing you know like 70 miles an hour weaving in and out of these cars, and we're just holding onto the back of this thing uh, for dear life. And by the end of the sequence, he's uh, said I looked a little green, and I think he was thoroughly enjoying making me sick. But uh, some of the other things that we did on this sequence were uh, there's a lot of palm trees because it was added and it was shot in L.A. And so we ended up painting out palm trees and various things like that, particularly the this, this shot where, where Brad hits the guy in the head uh, with the golf club. This is a special Steve Kemper moment of all these different explosions. To Brad and Angelina's credit in our ADR editor Kimberly Harris all this was looped because of the uh, obviously the production sound with the wind and the engine sounds it was unintelligible for example this shot uh, we actually had to hide Angie's uh, the stunt double's face that was driving uh, and uh, there's a lot of continuity fixes too. the doors uh, sometimes they were open sometimes they weren't so we'd have to paint them uh, on or off depending on where we were in the sequence, how it was finally cut together. It's at the end of the sequence when, when Angie spins the van. Uh, one of the doors is actually closed and we actually had to paint it open and then reveal uh, the interior with Brad and, and all the, uh, the car and CG. So it would, uh, it would match. And then for these shots, these are actually production shots that we went in and replaced the backgrounds uh, with new backgrounds that we shot with Simon Crane because uh, Doug felt there wasn't enough Jeopardy. A lot of stunt doubles in here, but I think the matching is really, really quite good. 
Those are all digital cars on that bridge, leading to this climax. Another green screen shot. There's so many things that you can do to embellish it. I mean, Joe came up, Joe in New York came up with the idea of the flying tire and then uh, Furious went in and, and animated it and added it. But uh, it's, there is so much, you know, more that uh, you can do. And, you know, uh, this, this is another shot that we actually went in and replaced the background because we didn't feel like there was enough debris and they didn't see the car wreck and they didn't like where it was. So this, all the windows were rotoed out and new plate was added to it um and you can imagine for as long as that shot is the having to roto that cross and all the glass and everything um very challenging uh, uh furious effects did an amazing job on this uh and even the shot they added the city in the background as well as uh sky was replaced uh from some stills that the director shot miss miss i'm talking to you excuse me Jesus, Johnny. Good morning, Eddie. Good morning. Good to see you're okay, man. Tell me you got smart and that you killed that lying bitch. Or this lying bitch? Yes, which is wishful thinking. I'm sorry. Eddie, we got it's nice to see you, Jane. Eddie. Eddie, focus, please. We got problems. You got problems. Crack addicts got problems, my friend. You two are smoked. Maybe. Maybe. Johnny got the entire agency gunning for you. You probably have her agency gunning for you, too. Hey, what about you? Me? Where you at? Where am I at? I find myself dragging my feet this morning. I think you owe me a little money anyway. Sweet. We don't understand each other, and I understand that, but I don't, I don't need to have those looks from you, okay? I've been in his life for a long time. Focus, I've been in his life for a long time. Focus. Pissed off. They blew up my house. They shot at my wife. My own company. If she works for who the street says that she works for, you're Macy's and Gimbel's. There was always a consideration as far as the uh, the audience, how many people would actually know what Macy's and Gimbel's were. But I think the point is well made. The point of this is simple. Once you guys decide to get off the reservation, that's it. Then you're off the reservation. Eddie, how bad? How bad is it? Mm. You remember Canada. That was kid stuff next to what you're up against. That was you. Oh, is that a turn on? Did she try to kid with a car? I'm not gonna It's not my business. Stop. A good friend stays out of it, I understand. This is the facts. If you two separate from each other, you got a shot. Not a great shot. Johnny, we got a shot. If you two stay together, you're dead. Unless you can find something that they want more than they want you. That last line about unless you can find something they want more than they want you was added later to help explain why they go after Adam Brody's character. There used to be a whole scene outside of the, the diner that kind of led to the capture of, of Adam, but then it was decided to use that one line, and then this new scene with Carrie Washington was filmed at a later date to get them to the courthouse to abduct uh, Adam. Do one of you guys mind changing the channel? One is moving in right now, one through yesterday. Would you please get off your fat ass and change the channel? So there's the second shot I know it's right tough. Thank you. That's going to make things even colder than they are right now. 
The shot of when we, we come up out of the bunker through that, that's, uh, we come out of the bunker and then go through up to the courthouse was uh, a combination of, again, gluing three separate crane plates together that Furious Effects did and then bridged them with CG elements like the underground part of the street and um, the shaft that we go through. Um, and then the, the actual uh, plate of the courthouse was shot in the morning and uh, then treated day for night, which they did an amazing job with because it really doesn't look like that in the real footage. I would say 550s, 060s. One of the logic points that we <clears throat> that is apparent possibly to some at this point in the movie is where did this stuff come from that they have, the van, so on and so forth. And again, one of the things you agonize over rationalizing and, and from a story standpoint and trying to, trying to come up with a version that tells you where and how some of those energies as this scene proved to me when I watched the movie for the first time was just not re you know that that energy was not relevant you know just they're spies the stuff's there and and let's get on with the story I agree because I always question well where do they get the Verizon van from where do they get all this equipment and it was never a comment in any of the previews that we had questioning the logic of this how, the leap from well, this, we were so far from logic by this point in the movie. <laughs> I guess, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a notion that sometimes I just kind of keep coming back to for some foolish reason. Doug shot a whole bunch of stuff where he had a video camera, like, uh, inside these, these tunnels that were built on a stage. I, yeah, they were built on stage. For and uh, he asked me to put together um, what would be, um, like, a POV and... Uh, it was very, very difficult. This, this scene does not bring back a lot of great memories for me, but uh, it worked out fine. Again, these computer screens are used practical photography and added graphics. Almost there. I don't know what happened. Just hold on. John, what are you doing? What are you doing? Wait for my signal. You didn't wait for my signal. 
I improvised. You deviated from the plan. The plan was flawed. The plan was not flawed. Ain't no Organize. Jane, 90% of this job is instinct. Well, your instincts set off every alarm in the building. My instincts got the job done. It may not have been the Jane no, show. No, it was the John show. It was half-assed. Like Christmas, like our anniversary. Like the time you forgot to bring my mother's birthday present. Your fake mother's birthday. The point is, you are always the first to break team. You don't want a team. You, you want a servant for hire. I want someone I can count on. Jane, there's no air around you anymore. Oh. Okay. What is that supposed to mean? It means there's no room for mistakes. No mistakes whatsoever. No spontaneity. Who can answer to that? Well, you don't have to, do you? Because this isn't even a real marriage. Who are you people? Shut up! So now I realize you witnessed the missus and I working through some domestic issues. This is another sequence where you'll see Jeff's brilliance in terms of being able to integrate what was original photography here with coming back at much later dates and recreating this motel room. I think this scene was probably shot about three or four different times. <laughs> it was. This movie really was all about evolution as far as what works and what did and what doesn't work. And it was uh, sometimes it was trial by error. Um, where things were shot initially according to the script and then realizing that, no, that wasn't quite right. And fortunately, the, the generous folks at Regency supported uh, the filmmakers in terms of allowing them to go back and, and reshoot uh, using uh, some different ideas uh, and approaches to the content of each scene. It's, it's not a license that you're normally given, no. per se. No. I mean, there was a part where... After she knocks him over with knocks uh, when Angelina knocks over Adam Brody with the phone, where she throws a knife right down in front of him and uh, has a heel stuck into his into his neck, and, and uh, that was all jettisoned for uh, different versions. Benjamin, okay. impatient people, Benjamin. So that's a reshoot of her on the bed. Can I get a soda? And this is all back and forth between original photography and reshoot. So this notion about uh, him telling him where the uh, the photograph was and Brad's reaction was done on a later date than the original the scene. I'm tied up. Why don't you check my back pocket? I'm not the target you are. Both of you. They found out you're married, so they teamed up and sent you to the same hit to target each other. It was a joint task force by both your companies. Two competing agents living under the same roof. It's bad for business. They wanted you to take each other out. You were bait. Well, it's entry level to hold into the company. A couple of hits, they bought me up to a desk. It's pretty cool, actually. Did you keep the photo in your back pocket? What was I supposed to do, frame it? You, you get rid of it, you burn it. One of the bigger uh, transitions of the third act is one that leads from this scene to the kind of uh, warehouse store, home store finale. And originally there was a number of variations of things that happened between this hotel and the morning of, or the evening, what it finally became, that that showdown basically happens at the superstore. The version that uh, we ended up with, you know, that's it's in the movie, again, was kind of 
this decision that was made late late in the game uh, under the under the guise of keeping the pace that Mike had established, and, you know, the, just the the tone of the, how the movie was cut together. I, I remember being in a meeting and talking about um, how to how to get from A to B because it was a big it was a big challenge. We'd done, we'd done all this other footage of them being holed up, other whole dialogue scenes where, where they wait for you know for the morning for the store to open for them to go into the store in the parking lot full of people and shopping carts and 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 uh it kind of boiled down to like why don't they just why is why just make the hotel adjacent and you know kind of offered that why does it not just three blocks away from this store it's the only thing in this kind of semi-industrial place that's that's close it's just like the next place to go it was doug's idea to kind of put them into this like as they're waiting for the guys to look for them they leave by going down through the multiple doors that connect all the hotel rooms and then they're kind of holed up inside this sewer grate until the the heat cools just enough for them to make their way to this place to stage this kind of finale. And it really, I think, worked, it was probably the best version of how it could ever work for the movie to keep it what we at least as far as what we had and where the where the movie had gone at that point to just like get into it and make it happen. I was really happy that it was so successful. And keeping it all at night just streamlined the whole third act. Uh, in terms of not having to explain way too much before they end up at the Ikea, at the homemade store. Granted, we, we referred to it as the Ikea scene from day one because that's what it was originally scripted. And my personal experience, I knew that, you know, I don't care if they are from Sweden, they still don't want, you know, 150 people being shot to death in their store. So it was never going to happen. So we started, our, my department started kind of coming up with a, with a name. For the place, just that would you know be kind of ironic and 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 make sense and I think you see the exterior of the store and the shot coming up here. The previous two shots were all digital. The homemade store. That's what it was. I was actually yeah. wasn't looking at the there screen. There was no home, and the, and you look at the reflections and of the of the neon sign and the in the pavement. It's just pretty miraculous. Yeah, it turned out really good. A lot of this was helped out again by another editor who came in uh, named Stuart Pape, who worked with Doug on Born Identity. And uh, again, because of the late, uh, the lateness of when this was shot and and the amount of material. So in other there words, homemade. Go. There, that's all homemade digital. On the left is all digital. Uh, Stuart came in and helped me out on this the end of the movie as well. One of one of the issues we had with all this footage that they were wearing these kind of you know fitted three piece suits during the course of a lot of the fighting in this scene and how do we get them from you know we just left the hotel room why would they ever you know they have why would they ever put on why would they ever do a wardrobe change if it's if it sequentially is the next thing that happens so I kind of pitched this idea about you see right here of them kind of like there's these two disparate kitchens like you can have X or Y you can are you this or are you that and it's your home, make it your own, and that there's these these kind of vintage mannequins that are well, the two husbands that have suits. And so originally there was going to be a look from her to, you know, from John to Jane as far as like, well, there's the there's the woman's clothes. She's like, you know, no, no way. I'm wearing a suit if you're wearing one. All this had to be mocked up um, using storyboards and some animation before we got the approval from the studio to go and reshoot this. So all of this was, was done with animation, and then we cut sound effects and we recorded voices from my editing crew as far as who was John, Jane, and Doug kind of wrote some dialogue. And then we showed it 
to, first of all, the producers first to see the, where we were going with this, and then had to show it to the studio, and everyone thought it was the best solution to this problem we had in resolving the third act and getting them into the store. Uh, but Doug is very imaginative in, in terms of using all kinds of different media to create um, sequences. So when we went into this place, it was technically an actual, it used to be an Ikea store. It was actually too small and it was empty and empty and waiting to be sold or demoed or turned into something else. <clears throat> and uh, so every kind of, every single item that you see in this whole sequence was something we had to schlep into this place and the elevator didn't work and be loaded on a scissor lift and brought up to the neck, to the top floor and... So it was a very, very massive endeavor for my set decorating department, Victor and his crew, and they did a great job. And my graphics guy, Dave Scott, and developing the whole homemade kind of graphics program. You'll see some other wacky signs later. We always like to have some fun with that stuff because you rarely ever see it. If you do, it's only for 10 seconds. And You guys can give Walmart a run for their money, I think. <laughs> CG knives are great, and the, mm -hmm. they turn out really nice. That got a big laugh when I watched yeah. the movie at a regular theater, that one. The old knife in the thigh gag. Now, initially, Brad knocking over these cans are meant to be cans of peas, which harken back to the peas at the dinner table, but... Uh, that was a notion that really didn't quite work out as well, but it still works in terms of creating the noise and the conflict there that ignites the, uh, the bad guys. Now this is something that, in terms of my um, working relationship with Doug, I was able to completely manufacture with some help from Stuart. Initially when they were right up in this elevator, there was a whole nother sequence, uh, a whole long shootout in what we call the 99 cent store. Uh, but when I saw it initially, I thought it just went on way too long. There was way too much shooting. So I, this is old photography. Now this shot up here, that's just a reverse action to get them back in the elevator. And then I added these bullet hits on the back like the, the elevator had been shot up. I just wanted to get them in and out and back down for the climax of the sequence. Um, anyway, it was a very extensive uh, shootout upstairs there, uh, which was called the 99 cent store that Stuart cut. Going clockwise, watch my set. So Angelina up here on the rafters was, was early on in the photography, and this is all integrated with material that was shot at a later date. This is new material of Brad, that's old stuff of Angelina. So that hole there you see in the wall was actually created by Brad and Angie driving an ATV at one point through 
the store and they had a Gatlin gun on it, but that was from an old version of the script. So I just, we just lifted that section and uh, no one seemed to really question why there was a hole there. It was just from, I think, the overall uh, chaos of the shootout. There's another scene that was shot over several occasions. This, um, the interior, the old interior of the shed. Yep. There's a piece of this set you'll see here, which is kind of this cutaway of a oversized dollhouse, for lack of a better description, that these some of the assassins are on and within right here. That was part of the original, one of the original versions of Mother and Father, where they actually go to this store and stage this showdown. And they go there in the morning. I was talking about that earlier. And basically stash all these weapons everywhere and literally kind of trip a device that signals the 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 factions that want them that they are here and that this this showdown is going to take place. And that whole scene is part of a pitch that I gave earlier where they were deciding what to do that was taking place on a porch swing and you don't know where they are. It's against kind of a backdrop of this verdant grassy field. And then you widen out and you realize that they're in this home store and they're on this kind of, you know, this basically this giant display home silhouette piece that you only ever really see in this version as in that one shot with a craning up behind it with the uh, assassins on it. Yeah, it was an amazing set. You notice when Angie looks out of the uh, the shed there, those, that's not a traditional POV. We never really had something from her vantage point looking out. So those are stolen, not necessarily traditional points of views, but they seem to work in terms of what's out there and what isn't. And that was a, Sometimes in the cutting room, there's always points that are very controversial, and using those POVs was one of those moments that We'd go back and forth between various factions that were in the cutting room, whether we wanted those or not. Now, coming up is the, the Dance of Death, which was probably the most problematic in terms of different versions that we had, um, adding CG bad guys here using old photography, as far as speed ramps and uh, musically what to use here. Uh, do we use score? Do we use, you know, we came back to the, you know, to a version of the strummer bit to put them back into the dance, which, um, you know, I, there's a little section up here which I just kind of jump cut little kind of choreographed moments to give it a little bit of a, a dance vibe. A lot of this is added debris to kind of help with our continuity and matching between different shots. I'm interested in the progress you've made in the last few years. Uh, doing all right, aren't we? I mean, listen, I'm not going to lie to you. There were times I just wanted to... I wish I had thought of that pre-lap, but that was Doug's idea of hearing Wexler's voice over that two-shot. 
And once again, this was what shot out at the Van Nuys Airport or something like that, Jeff? Yeah, this is like the fourth time we put this Wexler's office set together, and <clears throat> it was the 11th hour, and uh, this is literally the last film rolled on the movie, so it's very fitting that uh, it was the first time they came together and the last time they were together on film within the process of making this movie over the course of, what, 18 months? Yep. Brad did not want to do this, and so we actually, our first preview, we had two versions of this movie, one with this Wexler scene and one with the scene of them ending up in Italy with a little child. So we sat and watched the first version, which was the Italy version. It played out, and then everyone rushed, all the studio guys and the filmmakers rushed to a second theater to hear the Wexler version. And once we, once we heard the, the laughter, we knew that was the version to go with. But I told Doug when I first saw that, and he brought it in on, on, on digital video for me to cut before the film was even processed, and I knew right then... That was the ending of the movie. Jeff Mann. Michael Tronic, together again for the first time. Oh, I have to say, you know, I mean, I, that's when I, I had to find Michael after the, after the premiere, you know, I, just, I was just so blown away at the job that he had done and, 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 and maintaining his, his integrity. It was in close quarters with, you know, in a very, very challenging environment you know from a personality standpoint you know and I I'm 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 there's things that I love about everybody that's been involved in this process producer you know every producer that I've worked with and Doug and but taking it I mean there's no I'm I, I can safely say that as a as a group you know it, it's it's a, it's an e it's an it's not an easy group to deal with you know um there were times where there were factions and there were times where there weren't there there Somebody who's always in the hot seat uh, seems to a certain degree ba based on what was happening. And M Michael had to sit and, you know, in the editing room for, for a very, very long time listening and trying to filter and, and still come up with his own solutions to so many challenges and problems. Um, you know, he's 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 my you know, he's probably my hero in this. Absolutely. In this in the process of this movie being as turning out as well as it did. I mean, everybody gave a lot, way more than the movie even really needed, you know, because of how long it went on and how much extra footage we did and versions and all that uh, New Regency generosity we were speaking of earlier. And um, um, without, you know, Mike, stick with his stick-to-itiveness and, and him, him seeing it through and landing this plane without, a, you know... With the, the well, the pilot was getting resuscitated, man. <laughs> it's fantastic. So I, I, I owe you a debt of gratitude you. for your for your abilities and your and your and your uh, skill and your talent and your perseverance, Mike, for sure. Thank you. That's very kind. And once again, I'll just reiterate my uh, acknowledgement of your contribution way beyond the the production design of it in terms of your involvement with the story, which was invaluable. Well, thank you. But just going on, just for a second, um, from what uh, Jeff so kindly just commented on, um, I mean, initially I've never been on such opposite poles aesthetically with the director as I have been with Doug, and we kind of just kind of grew together uh, as far as kind of understanding a style, and um, you know, you just have to stay with your instincts. But it was pretty contentious at times, more than most movies, as far as the dynamics in the cutting room. And I have everything on tape. <laughs> Not just kidding. <laughs> There's my crew. 
they really held it together for me. But there's a version of Doug that that's that's Doug's that is Doug's process. You know that that is what he he you know and there's nothing who's to fault a process that has worked so well for him. You know um, it is it's very unorthodox and uh, you know having something be orthodox isn't necessarily like the the you know the first thing you're trying to achieve in this situation like this. But it was so so. You know, it's almost like the, the the biggest stipulation to his approach is that having that kind of an exchange with all the creative people involved takes a lot of time. You know what I mean? It's like a giant. It, it, it's an investment to, to to arrive at a at a place where you're working with somebody like Doug and Mike's relationship, or my, Doug and my relationship. Like it's, it doesn't, you know, it's you you have to learn. It's a learning process, you know, and and to think that that learning process was happening. On so many different fronts, you start to dissect how much time was available to actually make this thing happen. It's kind of one of the re- maybe one of the reasons inadvertently that it that it had to it took as much as it took to get it completed. You know, um, again, this is not a bad thing to, that I'm saying. It's just you know, it's just was was uh, was the process. You know, Doug's process and in turn the whole the whole productions uh, uh, adapted adopted process so i went through a similar process as you did in the beginning where i went through several interviews with doug before i landed the gig and uh and during the course of that i talked to uh people who had worked with doug before um editors um and studio executives but the analogy i made it's you know you can people can tell you all kinds of things about what it's like to be a parent but it's not until you actually have a kid they say oh my god this is what it's all about there's no manual there's no it's just, you just throw all that stuff out. So Steve Marioni, who worked with Doug before and um, other folks, told me a lot about the process, but it wasn't until I was actually in it. And I'm still trying to figure it out. It's been a year and a half later, and believe me, there's things about it that I don't quite get yet, and I'm still unsure of. Um, but that's the way it is. There, he does function from a certain creating a certain amount of chaos, but out of that he extracts elements that work. And at the end of the movie... Uh, our last night on the mix, I said, you know, Doug, um, I said, if you told me that Monday you're going to go find the cure to cancer, I, I, I'll say to you that I don't know the first thing about it, but if there's anything I can do to help you, I will. Uh, so he somehow, I really came around to, to admiring his process as best as I could understand it. And for an editor, it's extremely important to try to get a, get a hold on that. And, and it was very elusive at times. I mean, he has, he does, certainly has, he's one, of, he's one of the more optimistic people I've ever met in a very, you know, yeah. kind of, not, you don't really read it as optimism initially, but you start to realize just his perseverance, his level of perseverance for, you know, you just wish you could join him, step, you know, step or, or lock, you know, lockstep with him, but it's, but his, his vision is purely, it's a solitary thing. And so it's hard to be collaborating with somebody who could never really fully explain to you what they want or, you know, and on times not even really be sure that they knew what they wanted other than to have this process and to figure out what it is that, that is, is wanted, not necessarily by him directly, but just for the, for the movie. So it's, it was definitely, um, uh, psychologically was, it was definitely one of the more, more, challenging and interesting projects I've ever been involved with, for sure. A lot of psychic energy, man. <laughs> that stuff doesn't just grow back in 10 seconds. <laughs> I know. Yeah. 